My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shada. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Ruchika Sachdeva is the designer behind Bodice Studios, an emerging label from Delhi that took out the 2018 International Woolmark Prize for Best Women's Wear Designer. And this collection has won her some serious praise. So she's been picked up by department stores, she's been written up by all the big mags. In a piece for Vogue Online, Sarah Moa called her a bellwether for a new generational kind of change. And the idea is that Ruchka's part of a new generation of designers for whom sustainability is a non-negotiable. And as you can imagine, I just love that. (laughs) Now, I met Ruchka, who actually trained at the London College of Fashion when she came out to Sydney to do an event with my friend Eva at Parlour X. And actually, if you haven't listened to the podcast that we did with Eva, it was at the end of series one. And we were talking all about true luxury and the art of buying. So check that one out. Eva is one of the Walmart Prize judges, along with the likes of Livia Firth, Leah Kabede and Philip Lim. Anyway, I spoke on this panel with Ruchka and I was just so impressed with her eloquence and her empathy and just the way she really thinks about and explains her vision for what a young fashion business can do and be today. We got on really well. We kind of bonded over all sorts of things from our shared dislike of our culture of wastefulness to our need to reconnect when it comes to our clothes and to the importance of provenance and craft. But the bit that really got my mind buzzing and made me say to Ruchka that she had to hop on this podcast was the way she's applying design to providing solutions for unsustainable fashion. Her garments are made with changing women's bodies in mind. Now that's relevant because changing shape and growing out of clothes is one of the big reasons why we throw them away. There was a British survey that happened in, I think, January 2018 that suggested about a quarter of women have clothes lurking in their closets that they can't wear because they're no longer fit. And I read that and thought, I bet it's more than 25% of us. I'm sure that many, many more of us have got that stuff hiding in there that we don't wear. Now, 
Keeping clothing in use would, of course, prevent us from throwing textiles into landfill, which is definitely a good idea, but it can also help with some other eco stuff. According to Fashion Revolution, extending the life of a garment by just nine extra months can reduce its environmental impact by as much as 30%. Ruchika believes in the practicality of soft tailoring, as she puts it, which is a lovely phrase. And what she does is try and apply that to the problem of wearers putting on or losing weight. So she employs things like tie waists and movable pleats and fastenings so that these clothes can last for years and change with us. You wouldn't know it to look at them either. She's really ingenious in the way that she creates these silhouettes. She also talks about aesthetic simplicity or classics, I guess, but the idea that we can use these to mitigate against waste. And I like this quote from her too. She says, if they're too much, too loud or too trend based, you're going to get bored of your clothes more easily. Not sure if that applies to me. I quite like loud clothes, <laughs> but I get her point. A really classic, minimalist and elegant line is not going to date as quickly as something really trendy, is it? So we talk about all these things and more, as well as the excitement that's currently building around modern Indian fashion and how it's most certainly not all about Bollywood and weddings. I think you're going to really enjoy this one. Now, dear listener, we are galloping towards the end of series two of the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. We'll have another show for you next week. I'm recording this in London and I'm working here until Christmas. I'm planning heaps of great stuff for series three, doing lots of meetings and preparing lots of cool interviews for you. But you might remember that a couple of weeks ago, I raised the idea of crowdfunding. I need some help to keep this show on the road. And I had some great positive feedback on that. So thank you. My plan is to set up a crowd funding page next week and share the details with you. I hope you'll support me. Watch this space for all the details and also check in with me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. But now let's hear from Ruchika. I'm delighted that we're getting to do this face to face. Now you are here in Sydney with the Walmart company and this morning we had a lovely panel discussion in Parlor X which is stocking your collection and the owner of Parlor X, Eva Galambos, Mm -hmm. who's actually been on this podcast and we'll share a link if you guys haven't listened to it yet. She is one of the judges of the International Walmart Prize with some good names like Livia Firth, Leah Cabedo. You won this year in the women's category. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing this. And uh, I really appreciate it. But let's talk about winning that. What does it mean for a relatively young brand? I mean, you're from 2011, you began Bodice. What does it mean to you to win this? It's incredible amount of exposure because I have been doing this for years and being in India, you can sometimes feel a little stuck as to how to go out there and uh, show your work to the rest of the world. So this is almost like a window which opens up and you get to meet a lot of people. And uh, we also get to meet some hectic full on people because it is such a prestigious thing. And I'm just going to say this for people who don't know, because it's quite lovely. The International Walmart Prize in its first incarnation was won by, you would know, 1954. Carl Lagerfeld. Yeah, it was quite prestigious. Both of them in the same year. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. And Saint Laurent was 18. I know. Which is crazy. Can you imagine? I mean, it did, in a way, make their careers. They had to send in sketches. It was a different kind of format yeah. to the one we have now. Yeah. But it's ha- it has such legacy, which is what makes it so important. And it's also rooted in a good cause, which is what I really love about this competition, which is that they want to promote a renewable fiber. You know, so... I think it's uh, one of the best competitions out there for young Talk talent. about the process. 
so what happens is that initially you are nominated by your country by your region basically so from our region we had three designers and um they're different countries and they are altogether six regions i was from india southeast asia and you go there there's a regional round there's a set of prestigious jury members it's around 15 people we have to go in there and talk about your work you have to be good at presenting yeah in 10 minutes so mm-hmm. there's a timer on <laughs> so what did he say give us a one minute recap oh my god it's like really nerve wracking i just went in there i introduced my brand and introduced what i do and i explained the dress i had one dress at that time this is the first round and uh, you just talk about your work and you introduce your one dress which is there and what you plan to do if you win it you just talk about it and then you they announce one winner from each region and then the winner of each region which is you have america which is a region then you have britain which is a region then you have europe then you have australia and new zealand so there are like five regions and that there's one winner from each region and if you cross that then you go to the final round which is what happened in florence where we had eva as a judge like you mentioned and there were 20 judges this time and it's a showroom format where you have your whole collection and what are they looking for i don't exactly know you do know cuz you won come on i think they're just looking for an authentic point of view and um, if you have that i think that's key and they're also looking at how thoughtful you are when you make clothes are you thinking about everything and to be a brand to be a fashion label in this day and age you need to kind of be quite put together your business side your plans your production cuz in the end the judges a lot of them are store owners like eva herself and they know when they're talking to you whether you know about your production you know about your deliveries what are your price points that's on top of of course having an incredible product but your view of those aspects becomes more than simply being a good business owner because you're very interested in the supply chain aspect in yeah. making clothes with good soul and having a business with purpose absolutely because i wouldn't otherwise do what i'm doing it can be a little uh, dissatisfying for me otherwise so the making part of it is the most interesting part for me that's what i enjoy the most because otherwise i question what am i doing as a designer cuz it ends up being like there are too many recipes out there already if you're cooking a dish you're just making the same dish so what is it that you're adding to it so And if i'm putting my life for you is yeah. it about that provenance yeah it is about that absolutely let's talk a little bit about that process So I usually uh get inspired by things when I'm traveling. So I have this sort of mental mood board of things that I'm collecting everywhere whatever I'm drawn to. And then I go back and it really always starts from textiles because I'm blessed to be in a country like India where there is we have a rich heritage of textiles and so many skilled artisans who unfortunately are not getting as much work as they should get. I always start from the textile stage. So sometimes even the yarn stage. So that means working with somebody who's skilled at spinning the yarn, weaving the fabric, dyeing, keeping all of that in mind and putting it together in a beautiful uh, collection. It's interesting to talk to a designer who talks about the mood board, which I think everybody relates to, yeah. but then comes immediately back to yarn. I mean that's like <laughs> a very early stage and it is all about the craft. Yeah. It's not maybe it's common in India. 
it's less it common is, here. It is, it is, definitely, because you have access to it. And I think I like to call myself a dressmaker more than Dude, a fashion designer. Love. I think that's what I am. Well, first of all, that's interesting to me for two reasons. One is that it's obviously about a craft and mm. about the practicality of applying that craft. But mm. the other is very humble. <laughs> Isn't it? Don't you want to be Karl Lagerfeld taking your big bow? Uh, I don't know. I guess by this generation, you do start to question, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Is it making me happy? And I have been doing it for six years. Mm. And in India... I used to do shows. I started with fashion shows and I just realized how hectic it gets. Mm. And then I stopped doing shows. Did you? Yeah. And then now I'm trying to see how can I express what I'm trying to do in alternative ways, which also gives me happiness because mm. that's a part of sustainable living. If mm. I'm not taking care of myself, how Absolutely. can I take care of the planet? And I was teasing about Karl Lagerfeld. However, if you think about that traditional approach, which is, Hectic numbers of collections and shows, mm. extreme pressure. And then I always think about the crash, like the post-show crash, all that adrenaline. And then <gasps> the slump. It's no, not very, really. it's not brave. Doesn't make you happy in the end of it, you know, because people are built differently. I'm sure there's some people who can deal with it. I am not built like that. Mm. You mentioned generational. I wrote this down. I'm going to read it out because I liked it. <laughs> so Sarah Moa wrote a great piece in US Vogue Online about the International Walmart Prize 2018. She called you a bellwether for a new generational kind of change. Lovely phrase. But the headline for this piece was, Can Young Designers' Ethics Impact the Establishment? I thought that was very interesting. And it is about this idea that we're seeing a different, a change, a new generation that's approaching all of these things in a different way. Yeah, I think people are definitely questioning things. We're learning from the generations before us. We're seeing our parents and people who are older to us and how things were done. And we're saying, do we really want to do it that way? Because we know more. We're blessed to know more. We have awareness. We have Instagram. We're looking at things. Mm -hmm. The people like you who are talking about it, we're listening. So, yeah. For sure, I think uh, we're doing things differently. How old are you now? 30. Right. So when you began Bodice in 2011, how old were you? 23. Very young. Very young to start a brand, <laughs> right? Yeah. I don't know. It just I happened. Mean, I guess people do it. I guess it's actually, I say it's very young because I feel like an old dinosaur. But in fact, that is what people <laughs> do. You come out of you, you come out of college, you were at the London College of Fashion. Yeah. And then you do it, right? Yeah, I worked a bit and then I just started to miss it because I was in London for four years. And I know the reason I got into fashion was like tactility of things and uh, making things, feeling, touching. Well, being a dressmaker. Exactly. And then everything just became a lot about computer and technology. And I started to feel like an office person, you know. And uh, so I was like, I need to move back. I need to be more hands-on, work with the community, work with artisans and actually make things. We're going to get into your story of how you began because I want to learn a bit more about where you grew up and where all this came from. But first of all, coming back just to that idea of when you began Bodice, mm. how clear were your values in terms of what you wanted to apply to the label back then? I always question, do we need another fashion label? So I remember having this conversation with my mom saying when I was in London, I was like, you know, this is... There's so many labels. Why am I even doing this? You know, I'm into it now. But like, do I really want to do it? So to make it a viable option for me, a viable, long lasting, satisfying career option for me. So it started from a selfish place okay. where I wanted to be happy. Yeah. 
And that meant the more I read about it, the more I realized that I can be happy if I contribute in some small way where I'm doing things consciously. So yeah, from the beginning, I knew that because I questioned personally, how is it made? And the moment somebody would say, oh, it's made somewhere else using the skill and this craft, I would look it up myself and be like, wow, that's so much more nicer and interesting. And, you know, the story. the story of it. And I wanted to engage with it personally. And I have grown up in a way where I've seen artisans around me. And that is something that I feel very close to. And the making of things and working with a cluster of women. Let's go back then. I'm very interested to know how you began. So you're based in New Delhi. Did you grow up there? Yeah. I I know your family is creative. Well, they would, they're not professionally creative, but like hobby wise, I would say. They they practice. She's a musician. Yeah. My mom studied, uh, she did a BA in classical Indian music. And uh, yeah, so she used to make music and she would record on cassettes like yeah. small little cassette recorders she would like be recording her music so it was a lot of like making and creating in the house even just cooking like especially spending a lot of time with my mom she was always just doing and making something was it a big family do you have brothers and sisters yeah I have an elder sister and I have a younger brother and my elder sister is also a bag maker oh is she <laughs> yeah lovely yeah. but your father paints my father paints as a hobby so you you were brought up in a creative environment. Mm. Were there expectations, however, that you would do something serious and professional, by which I mean something less flamboyant than fashion? Yeah. So creativity was just a hobby. Like I said, like none of my parents were practicing is it as their job. So what did your job. father do for a job? So my father, he makes colors. He makes what? Colors. It's like colors that go into wax or they go into different things. He makes color pigments. So he He has... He makes colors. I did understand what you said, but I couldn't understand the concept. (laughs) So in India, he has a factory to do. (laughs) He makes colors. Awesome. (laughs) Of course you're going to go to fashion. Yeah. And then... For uh, pigments, for art. Yeah. Or for... For anything. It can go into art. It can go into industrial production. I use a lot of his colors for dyeing. by color. (laughs) Yeah. Literally. Yeah. So basically... My mom got married when she was really young, when she was 17 in an arranged system. And uh, she didn't really want to get married. But her mom was very scared because like some priest told my mom's mom that if she doesn't get married now, she never get married. And then so she got off married. So I think the early parts of my mom's married life were quite hard for her because she wanted to go to college and she couldn't go and she was in an arranged system where you know you basically get to meet the boy just once Mm -hmm. before you get married so I think uh, she had my sister when she was 18 she had me when she was in next three years so I feel that her growing up like this and 10 years of being quite in a very restricted family arrangement she absolutely wanted to make sure that her daughters are independent. So I think since I was like five or six, she was telling me to be an independent woman. Do whatever you want. More than do whatever you want. She wanted me to do something Mm. serious and make a living for myself. And maybe do something with purpose. Was that Absolutely, absolutely. And do something with purpose for sure. Uh, So she she was a very strong woman. And I think that's where it comes from. 
Let's talk about how you mentioned before that you have this intrinsic understanding of craft and artisanal work because you grew up surrounded by it. Let's talk about yeah. that in terms of India in general, but also your experience as a kid and growing up. Sure. So we have a lot of these traditions around um, just family life, which are very, very dominated by craft. For example, when a baby is born and a lady is pregnant, you have the mother and the grandmother and the mother's sister. They all stitch together their old saris. To, I love it. Yeah, to recycle them into quilts for newborn babies. And they believe that the love of the women who wore the saris would keep the new child protected. So in a way, they don't even know, but it's a part of the tradition through which they are upcycling their old saris. They're not throwing the saris. So I think it's something upcycling and not wasting anything was something that was so rooted in the past. And over the years, we've forgotten with the Industrial Revolution, with so many things just easily produced and produced in a cheap way. We've forgotten how to not waste things, how to upcycle them into something else. And more than anything, we've forgotten the stories behind them and how the there's emotional value in each and everything that a person makes with their own hands. So lovely. I am so motivated by these stories. I find them really uplifting and it brings us back very clearly to connection. When something has been made with love, when there's a story behind it, you value it, don't you? Yeah. So when we talk about disposable or fast fashion, that's what's lacking there. Mm, exactly. You mentioned before that you also come from a family and a culture where people make things. You've described yourself as a dressmaker. Yeah. But, you know, we talked before about people make curtains, people make tablecloths. Yeah. Furniture. It's very, very common to get an artisan carpenter to make furniture. As we talk, there's furniture being made in my studio. Right now, we're making a table where we literally go and source wood and we partner up with an artisan. And a strength of a designer, it's a beautiful collaboration because an artisan knows how to make it, but not necessarily the aesthetics, right? That's what differentiates and brings it from a craft to an expert design where education and design, exposure by going to the museums. It becomes almost normalised that you... Yeah. I mean, for me, I find it so exciting because I didn't grow up with it, although actually my mum is brilliant at sewing, so I did. Ah. But culturally, I didn't because in Britain when I was a kid in the 80s, it was like, go to the shops and buy the stuff. Mm. When you've grown up surrounded by not only the normalcy of making things, but also a deep connection with it. You then go to London College of Fashion. Did you think at that time you would always have that interweaving of the artisanal with what you wanted to do with fashion? Or did that come... At that time, when I was just going to college, I had no idea. It was the first time I ever stepped outside India. Was it? Yeah. I was going to London then. Uh, It was great. I think I've always been this kind of a person who looks at things in my own way and not keep the preconceived, you know, stereotypes in mind. So it was great. It was amazing living by myself. And also what I really valued about London is the expression and how people are free to really express themselves. And that comes through in the way they dress. So I think that was really helpful. We're not very hidebound by sartorial rules in Mm, London. I love that. It's very anything goes, isn't it, in a good way. And I love that. Mm. I feel like it's not about fitting in, but it's more about expression, which is great. I think as well that, especially in fashion in London, there's no judgment. People love creativity and craziness in a way that perhaps it's different in places like New York, where there are more codes around how you might like to dress. Or How does that compare with India? 
India is so vast. There are codes in different pockets, but they're so different that it does expose you to so many uh, a vast variety of dressing codes, mm. which is very interesting because they coexist. Yeah. It's a very paradoxical country where like extremes coexist together, which is very interesting. I'm going to zoom you forwards now to mm-hmm. the pieces that you make for bodice. Mm-hmm. I did a bit of reading about past collections and I've seen your beautiful new collection. Mm-hmm. One of the things that strikes me, and we talked about this before, I think it's why you're so clever, is that you've got this reverence for and respect for the artisanal, but the clothes don't shout that in a really obvious traditional way. It's not crafty. So I always wanted to make something which doesn't exist because mm. I don't believe in adding to what's already there. I felt that there is already a bunch of people who wear artisanal stuff, but they buy it because it looks very artisanal and it looks very crafty. You know, there's a certain aesthetic boho chic where yeah. a woman will be dressed and in very crafty. Point and it's lovely. It's lovely. But what about the women who want to wear modern, clean things? If I could open that set of women to artisanal stuff, then I'm adding something Mm. to the artisans. Because Mm -hmm. if I'm going to sell their product, a customer who already believes in them, then what is my value addition as a designer? By opening it up to a different set of customers who are more sartorial, minimal. I like to dress like that, but I like artisanal uh, craft. So how can I get access to that? How will I fall in love with that? Is when aesthetically it's very appealing for me. It's modern. Also, it's another philosophy which I believe that for clothes to be truly long-lasting, they also need to be aesthetically just enough. If it's too much, too loud, or if it's too trend-based, you're going to get bored of it within two years. It's more difficult to do Livia Firth's hashtag 30 wears if something is covered in spandangles. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) That's interesting. I've been really refreshed by your ideas around how we make design for longevity. And you keep changing my thinking because I I actually (laughs) never thought of it in some of these ways. And I'm speaking particularly about how we talked this morning on the panel about designing for the idea that a woman's body changes shape. Yes. So I am also very intrigued by the versatility of a draped garment like a sari or a dhoti, how people can just take a piece of garment and then fit it on so many different bodies and actually wear it to an occasion like your own wedding where you want to look fabulous. And at the same time, I believe in the practicality of soft tailoring. So I was like, how can I combine the two? So I have a lot of dresses in which you tuck, pleat and tie so that it sort of fits almost three sizes. And also we have double button pockets where using the pockets, you can uh, increase or decrease the size of the trouser by two inches. So that if I'm gaining weight, because like as I grow older personally, I have been gaining weight. Can I wear the same trouser 10 years Mm. ahead? If yes, then it's truly long lasting. And it's interesting when we talk about why people get rid of their clothes. There's loads of stats. We'll share some in the show notes. There was a recent study I just read about just how many people actually pass their clothes on because they don't fit anymore. So not simply because they're bored of them. And that happens a lot. Mm. My mum, my sister, I've gotten everybody's clothes because they were older than me. And literally, I got all my sister's wedding clothes. I don't think I need to buy anything. (laughs) (laughs) Did you get married? No. I just have clothes. (laughs) But this idea, it's 
lovely that actually you're not stuck and prohibited by the fact that that's a size 10 or that's a size 12. Actually, we could be fluid with the design. That's interesting. So move the button, move the pleat. And actually that that's been considered at the design stage. Absolutely. Because that's our value addition. That's our job, you know. And how can we find solutions to problems through design? That's what design is all about. Finding a problem and f- giving a solution to it using design. Mm. Let's talk about that particular garment that you were wearing this morning that has this beautiful wrap effect, but it also has this illusionary, because not really a pleat in the traditional sense, but stand back. It's an amazing pleat. Let's talk about that, because how do we pleat? Polyester. Yeah. Plisse is another thing which became really trendy. And I like it too because it's geometry and when you move, it's beautiful. But then the more I investigated, I realized that it's actually all polyester. Because it won't, the fabric won't hold the ironed in pleat unless it's synthetic, right? Exactly, because it's actually the plastic in the fabric that you put heat and then it heat sets and stays like that. And it's a highly chemical used process, which is really bad for the environment because in the end, all those chemicals are going in the water. So I was like, how can we find a solution? So what we did is that we folded each pleat in place, ironed it, and then just stitched it using another fabric. You top stitched it with a contrasting fabric. So they look like these very geometric and fantastic. So black and white or with a dusky aubergine colour in white. So it's very graphic. It's very graphic. So it's actually adding to the design. To find a problem like that and to give a solution in the end results in an amazing design. So it's very rewarding, this whole process. But it's also very time-consuming and takes skill it's to get it straight. It's extremely right? time-consuming. In fact, my whole team hated me for almost three months. <laughs> they were like, okay, we're going to not do it. We're not going to do it. And I'm like, no, no, we're doing it. And it's almost become our signature now where my team is so trained in doing it and now all of them are really good because everybody really struggled with it in the beginning it's highly skilled to like be able to fold the pleat in place and sort of stitch it a designer or a dressmaker would understand it well it actually reminded me of um techniques and shapes and silhouettes that I've seen in 1930s things I've got a fascination with vintage garments but Mm. I've got an amazing dress which is an art deco dress which is all knife pleated in silk and all Mm. these inserts we don't really see as much of that now because Mm. of cost of make right so that comes back to celebrating and supporting and paying for the Mm. artisanal so I would rather say buy one garment that is as expensive as two or three rather than buying uh, three garments and as a designer we promise you it's going to fit you after a few years and you're going to like it after a few years so all of that is our responsibility but you have to pay the right price for these mm. things and that's okay. I mean, people are spending. Haven't you seen anything becomes, a, what do you call it, a hype beast and everybody wants it. So it's about how can we make this more interesting for people, mm. you know, like what you're doing. Sustainability is a trend and amazing, good for us that it is becoming a trend. But you don't love that word. I don't like it because I don't want it to be as a dressmaker. I don't want it to be used in a very frivolous manner where everybody's like, hey, have you seen that sustainable brand without even knowing what it means? And I also feel like I never call my brand sustainable. You know, you'd never see it in a... Well, someone said today to you, would you call yourself 100% sustainable? And I thought, well, no one can. No, no. And it's a huge pressure on people like me who are trying their best. And I never, like when I started, I didn't even know the meaning of sustainability. It's a difficult English... (laughs) 
English word right. and you're like so not a word that was bandied about in Delhi very much it scares me when someone asks me are you sustainable I'm like no and for the longest time I have even told the press people please don't use this word with my brand because I don't know if I'm ready because I'm doing enough but I'm definitely not it's very little as compared to what should be done so I don't think it should be exploited this word is mm-hmm. not to be exploited mm-hmm. that's why I don't like to use it myself and I tell people as much as I can try to break it down so that it, people understand what it really means which is just about being thoughtful and making conscious choices it's just a choice you do use a rather lovely description on your website and I'm going to read it out shamelessly I've got it here <laughs> because it's lovely so how do we talk about process and about purpose and aim without using those words ethical sustainable mm. you talk about modern tailoring with a respect for the provenance of craft and an awareness of individual purpose and a responsibility towards fair business practices that sums it up all and it took me so long to try and make the sentence even though one of my friends who's really good at english thinks it's too long but i think that it serves the purpose and i want to be true and authentic about what i'm doing okay let's talk about fair business practices mm. how do you do that so you work in 22 states well i travel a lot and i travel around india and i try and visit each and every facility myself personally personally yeah i'm a bit of a nomad and uh, it's very interesting for me to go to those facilities actually speak to the weavers see how they're living and it's very easy to tell if you just go to a factory or a facility or a workshop by just talking to the people and especially if you're indian because then you can tell right those little things that how is the owner of the factory speaking to the artisans mm. or like having lunch with well, the artisans. Well, you can speak to them. I mean, it's a privilege that some of us just simply don't have when we make on the other side of the world and it's very, very difficult to see what's going on. Yeah, so ensuring that I'm only working with people who care about what they're doing and there's so many of them in India, just to meet them and see how passionate they are about the techniques that they're doing and whether the artisans are well paid and one of the things that I've started to do as my brand got more successful is I have started to have my own little I've started to curate my own team and it's talking to people and finding people who want to keep doing this and then educating them into skills so one of the people who joined me as a tailor one of my earliest partners like I found this guy who was a really good tailor and we were almost the same age and now he's the head pattern cutter right and this is all something he's learned on the way and he also attended a school i was like let's send you to a school and in the middle in the last 6 years in between for one year he went for a pattern cutting school and from what he started to where he is now it's incredible his salary is four times or five times you know so this is how i try to make sure but then there's always so much more I can do. Right. Let's talk about another specific story about makers that I just love. So in the Himalayas, so we weave fabric, uh, one of the fabrics that we made for the Woolmark collection was made in the Himalayas at this third generation facility of handloom weavers. Basically they insert the warps and then they push in the wefts with their hand. Right. 
and there's, there's a twist yeah <laughs> so this is the historic traditional technique of making a handloom fabric but i was like okay so if i want to innovate what can we do so there's another facility in india that collects old garments from people they work with a couple of ngos that take donations it? it's in nagpur i've read about it you have mm-hmm. okay so so blankets jumpers exactly woolen garments exactly and they then sorted there are a lot of women in this factory who sorted into different fibers and then the garments are then shredded back into fiber stage the fibers respun into the thread so we're talking about mechanical recycling they're literally tearing it apart yeah with their hands back to the fiber exactly and then of course they use a machine to really tear it apart into fibers and then you are left with a lower quality fiber because it's been damaged so it's shorter exactly and that's a problem which is perfect for handloom yeah. which is perfect for handloom because there are people handling it you're not just putting it in a machine with electricity and high pressure so how do they do it so they literally lift the yarns by their hand and they insert the thread so it's as simple but as that double because they're feeding it back in on top of what they had yeah. originally done so with the yeah so it's extra weft yeah it's extra called the extra weft. weft insert technique so it's almost like embroidery but it's beautiful because it's so subtle and what i did was literally line so and we unique because it's all different exactly yeah. so we inserted the post consumer waste upcycled yarn into a traditional handloom to make an extra weft geometric pattern out of it so this pattern is also since it's put by hand there is no way that it can be the same people do provide a graph where they say okay it needs to be this from here to here to here to here but i find that the weavers are so tortured by it by mm-hmm. the end of it that they don't enjoy the process so i literally sat with the weaver and i was like can we do it in such a way that it's almost like you are making art yeah and by the virtue of using the grid and the geometry of the fabric the fabric is in the end a grid mm. we literally inserted lines of this upcycled yarn into the handloom to do this extra weft embroidery but then it becomes its personality it's the weaver's personality and i was literally explaining the weaver cuz i didn't want any of the lines to be the same so i was like think of it as a tree how all the leaves are different but it looks so beautiful from far and it looks like one and they literally got it it's mm. like nature is there for us to give us examples yes. what a wonderful solution i believe that every design problem is actually an opportunity to design something authentic and unique and new because otherwise it's not satisfying mm. you're not creating something truly unique nothing escapes you with this vibe what about the buttons <laughs> yes so i i'm just amazed by how nobody has thought of using buttons that are not plastic i mean we have thought of it because we used to yeah but now it's like everybody has a plastic button everywhere so i think maybe why people don't use other buttons cuz they, they look really ethnic mm. but of course as a designer we can do something about it so what i did was that i partnered up with this guy who makes toys in south india out of coconut shells and he i was like can you make us buttons and he said yeah i can make them out of the waste of my toys the leftover cuz the buttons are so tiny so you're not even just solving your own problem you're also solving a problem of his waste it, it becomes circular yeah and there's certain things that the universe does for you you know you don't even think of it and it just fits in to places but how did you solve the problem of the coconut feeling quite rustic so we just coated it with enamel and it now looks super modern i feel like as a designer i would go buy this not just because it's made out of coconut 
Okay, let's talk more about fabric. So obviously working with Woolmark, you have to use wool in the design, but you used wool before. And we talked about how there's this preconception that wool has to be heavy and it's only for, you know, scratchy, knitty, cold Yorkshire. Of course it's not. No, I the reason I used wool is because it's renewable and I think it's the most amazing fiber because it grows on an animal's body and you can trim it off and it grows back again. So like nothing like even cotton or silk is that renewable because you have to put pesticides, you have to put things to sort of make it grow but you cannot speed up a process of how quickly the hair grows you know so even if people want to do something about it they can't and it's really incredible so that's why I have been using wool for a very long time also it takes dye really beautifully it takes natural dye in a really lovely manner because it's protein Mm. you know and uh, yeah I've been using it People have this misconception that wool is actually makes you feel really warm. But that's not true because the sheep that has the most amount of hair actually feels more insulated in the sun. Mm. Interesting, actually. Someone was telling me that in some areas of India, perhaps up there in the Himalayas um, and in northern India, there had been this rich tradition of weaving with wool. But now the pressure from pricing means that people are weaving with a lot of acrylic rubbish. Acrylic, yeah. We had so many like yak wools and in in Kashmir, we have so many ways of making our own wool. But it's just the price Mm. everybody is using acrylic now Mm. in fact this facility that I was talking to they were so worried that they were thinking we might have to start using acrylic in our old traditional hand looms Mm, and I was like no you don't have to do that so they're very happy when people are coming and actually using wool because they are one of the biggest importers of merino wool from Australia really but it comes back to this storytelling if you don't tell the story people can't understand the value of what's in their hands I mean you can you can feel it can you I want to finish up just by talking a little bit more about where do you see Indian fashion headed? And perhaps you might like to talk a little bit about that dreaded cliche of the Bollywood glary brightness and people thinking that Indian fashion is all this one big cliched colourful thing. Of course it's not. That's not true at all. I think people are doing such incredible things in India. It's just because Bollywood just took to the flashy side of it but even in the history think about Gandhi think about Khadi all of those people wore those beautiful white saris we had that minimalism in our history that's what I'm inspired by Mm. the utensils are all one color Mm. it's super earthy and beautiful and natural it's just because and the natural dyes natural dyes and the sari all of those are earthy they're Mm. not bright at all Uh, All the kalamkari, everything was done. Kalamkari is the hand painting on the textiles. All of that was always traditionally done in saris using the natural dyes. And, uh, so actually, it's a kind of relatively recent invention, this idea of the great colourful explosion, which comes from Bollywood, right? It's the power of Bollywood's marketing. Mm-hmm. It's the reach it has. It's just television. It's delightful. I once went to a Bollywood I love movie it. in India. It was so fun. <laughs> no, I love it. But I think it shouldn't be. you shouldn't be boxed into a category. You should have the freedom of expressing yourself. And I think there's so much more in India to be explored. I think there is a comeback to the pride in the Indian artisanal things because what happened was that because of wanting to be like the West for a very long time it was a lot about what are we seeing in Hollywood and do we want to do the same thing and forgetting about the rich heritage which was lying right in our backyard so what is happening is that there is a return of the pride of like yes it's mine and it's beautiful and how can I make the most out of it 
it's for the first time design is probably coming out of india because what would make me sad is that every time i would talk to an indian person a business person saying i'm making clothes and they'd be like for which brand i'm like no it's my own brand and they're like no because for so long india was a production hub for other countries perhaps the other in inverted commas fashion capitals yes and actually some of that the most famous brands and houses in the world produce their most exquisite work in india yes. but we don't talk about the artisans or the designers we never the- thought we were good enough to be designers we never had that kind of confidence and now we do and it's coming back so i think that's the future of indian fashion love it that's fabulous is the future of indian fashion and sustainability that i get to come and visit you yeah come to a bollywood movie <laughs> absolutely <laughs> <laughs> i'm just talking about bollywood because you admitted you like to listen to it i love it i love come hindi on. songs much more than english songs i yeah i love them it's joyous yeah as are you Thank you so much. <laughs> This has been delightful. Thank you. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com/podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch onto ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell them we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you